Welcome back, everybody, to our latest episode of Stacking Growth. It's Casty here. Carl, looking dapper. How you doing? <laughs> uh, I'm doing good, Cassidy. Better than than usual when you drag me on these podcasts at like 8 a.m. Pacific time. So, and I'm super pumped about our guest today. Obviously, the legend, Jen Allen. Jen Allen Newth? Knuth? It's like we you went from the easiest last name ever, Jen, to now it's a little bit more complicated. Jen, how are you? I'm actually, I'm loving it. I'm loving the panic I see in people's eyes when they're like, Jen Allen, and then they see I've hyphenated it, and they're like, what is that word? So you were right the second time. It's Knuth. The K is not silence. Well done, Carl. Yeah. You see, I got it the second time. I'm pretty good with guessing names. But um, anyways, it's probably because people butcher my my last name constantly, so I'm like a little bit more conscious about it to try to – nail it the first time but anyways jen it's great to have you uh can't believe we've waited this long to have you on uh on the podcast so thanks for showing up i mean what did you sent me a text and said do you want to come on and i said yes before we ever talked about a topic <laughs> a date, anything. it was just like yes i'm here i'm there let's do of it of course love it well thanks for coming hey we wanted to kick off and i wanted to chat yeah i wanted to jump in. i'm gonna jump in carl because jen, jen needs to know the truth okay and that is your name has sat on a spreadsheet for three months, and every time we get together to talk about who we're going to bring on the show, I'm like, Carl, when are you going to effing write Jen and say, hey, come on the show? Huh. And so he finally got off his ass and he did something. That's why it felt like for you, it was like you know, instantaneous, but this is a three-month conversation. It's like that, Carl. I see you. I see you. <laughs> he just laughed. <laughs> he just bolted. My camera switched. It felt how uncomfortable, like my body temperature was raising and then my camera was like, nope, I'm out. So obviously now it switched to my MacBook yes. camera for some reason, but whatever. Look, I don't know what spreadsheet Cassidy's talking about. I wasn't there. So don't listen to him, Jen. But anyways, no, we are glad to have you. Um, look, let's kick off. Your role has shifted quite a bit. I mean, you've done a few things in the last couple of years. So even at Challenger, you were closing, and then you switched to kind of their chief evangelist. And now at Lavender, you've got a hybrid role. I guess talk to us a little bit about that and how, how that this transition has been. How are you thinking about sales and marketing together lately? How has your new role has sort of shifted how you think about going to market in general? Like, talk to us. Catch us up. Yeah. So... 2021, cool. my last year is just a full-time quota carrying seller, right? 2021, yeah. Um, and it was that year that I realized the power of being present where our customers were learning or our prospects were learning. And so that was what prompted me to create the chief evangelist role at Challenger because I realized we were just spewing, here's what Challenger is, here's why Challenger was the best, but we weren't actually helping executives land on training at all as the category to spend on. And so that was a year of learning where I was doing a lot of opening conversations um, because we did not have a, a huge flow of inbound leads, right? So it was a really a big demand creation motion. And so when I left Challenger, I was kind of just planning to go off on my own and do my own thing. And then Will Allred at Lavender said, hey, we've got this idea for a community growth role. And I was like, well, I don't know why you're even mentioning it to me. I've never done that job. I can give you five names of people that I think would kill it. And he was like, I think you're probably making some assumptions around how we're thinking about community. The way we think about community at Lavender is 
there is a community that just exists out there on LinkedIn, on TikTok, and all these different places, and they're having conversations. And what we're looking for is someone who has a reputable voice and aligns with our way of, of viewing sales. And we think you have that, and we'd like you to come over and do that job. So long way of saying, I think the biggest thing that I've learned in these last three years, these last three very different roles, is that sales and marketing should feel so similar. Um, and I think in each of these instances, I've seen how when we make it, this is your job and this is your job, it's actually counterproductive to what we want, which is people wanting to have conversations with us. So that's been my big, I would say, lesson out of it. So like, give me some more specifics around your role then. Like, do you, are you just like, kind of like present and like dark <laughs> social, you know, and you just post and Mark Slack hey. people and you're in communities and you're doing events, obviously. Like I saw your keynote at uh, the Sales Assembly Remix. Is that like what you what you do? Are you, do you close deals? Do you like run any sales like that come your way? Like what's the kind of the spectrum of your day to day? Yeah, somewhere our VC partners are like, what are we paying her to do? Um, <laughs> That's Cutter. exactly what my question sounded like. Like, so cool, community, like, what do you do? That's probably the question I have for most people with community in their title is like, so yes. what do you do exactly? <laughs> So it's a fair question. And it was one of my hesitancies in taking the job because when I joined Lavender in January of this year, 2023, I had just seen all of these people get laid off from community roles. So I was like, am I just walking into a landmine? So my job, I mean, I do sales, I do marketing. I kind of just view my job as helping people learn about problems that would encourage them to consider Lavender as a solution, right? So the event that I spoke at that you saw was an event for CROs and sales enablement leaders where they were saying, you know, we want to give people a look ahead into 2023 and how to think about how to shift their sales and marketing strategies. So for me to do an event like that, it's far less about me speaking and it's far more about putting our point of view as a business up on a platform. And what that enabled us to do is to have a bunch of people come back, senior people, and say, hey, you know, the problem that you talked about was exactly what we just talked about in our meeting last week. Can you come in and talk to our team about this? What can you do in the way of helping our folks write, you know, better outreach that's representative of what we want our prospects to think about us? And so the way I look at it is I'm a door opener. Sometimes I walk halfway through the door, sometimes I walk all the way through the door, but it's a really clean handoff with our sales um, AE here because. I trust him implicitly to pick up the ball and run with it in the same way I would. So it's nice in the sense that we are still really small. We only have one AE. It's not this big like sales and marketing integration problem that many have. I know, Mike, I uh, competed against him in like y'all's cold email. Like, um, yes, I got the closest to beating him and I, but I still lost. So I guess I'm proud of that. Cassidy thinks I can't do stuff, but I was like, I can get that. Like, I was like, I could get a 90 on a cold email in lavender, but Mike rewrote it live. You know, he's got like a time gate of like 30 seconds. And yeah. he got a 91. I was like, golly. I still, <laughs> I still thought my email was better. I think I think he has a special version of lavender that like is trained <laughs> to him, but whatever. Um, Jen, that's- Yeah, so by the way, Carl has not gotten any emails to work in real 
But he still says uh, he wants to put his <laughs> lavender score on his performance review. So yeah. I don't know how to think about that. I'm going to put it in my LinkedIn like banner image, like 90, you know. <laughs> Nobody responds to my emails, that. but you know what? I got a 90 according to lavender. So it's kind of like when your mom, like your mom thinks you're cute, you know. It's like that's what I feel like lavender is for me. It's like, cool, Carl, you don't, you don't close deals, but we'll give you a 90. You're so cute. You're so, so cute. Dope. Here, here. Carl, here's what was going on behind the scenes. Jen was like, hey, Carl's a friend of ours. I know he scored 68 on this thing. Just give him, a, give him a 90. We need him out there talking about how he did so well on the score, even though we know his email sucked. Even though he's, he hasn't has sent a cold email to a cold prospect in two years. That's what the evangelist does right there. She's like, no, 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 no. We're not giving this guy 68. Yeah. We want him to post about this on LinkedIn so we can get some leads. Um, we don't want him to cry. Anyways, wow, we derailed you there, Jen. Uh, our bad. That happens on this podcast. <laughs> so you're a door opener. Sometimes you walk all the way through it. Sometimes you don't. You got Mike. You guys seem to have a really good um, mojo going. Again, Mike's a legend. He's awesome. Yeah. Mike told me something whenever we talked after we like recorded our episode. He was like, you know, Carl, people don't. I'm connecting the dots here, right? Between like you guys have a philosophy. And so Mike said it differently than you, but he was like, you know what we're finding is that like people aren't buying lavender as a product, even though like that is a transaction that occurs. He's like, they're buying lavender as a service. And I was like, dang, that's a pretty compelling like frame shift. And you said the similar thing, like we're out here evangelizing the problem. We're not like, again, I saw that in your keynote, like you mentioned lavender, you were wearing ridiculous lavender pants which were awesome thank you but like your keynote was not about lavender and why us why buy lavender it was like why you need to rethink how you think about email in business in a business context so you and mike speaking similar languages using different words like i guess talk to me the question here is like talk to me about how why does lavender crack the code on thinking this way about your go-to-market? Because a lot of companies struggle to talk about why change and what's changed in the world and how you need to rethink X, Y, Z thing and evangelizing the problem. They just kind of jump straight into why you should consider them versus another vendor. Was that a journey that you all went on? Did you show up and like, that's just what you did? Like, talk to me. Yeah. And by the way, I'm excited for you to talk about your point of view on this because your post today was just like, music. I loved reading it. Um, See? I think (laughs) I think I wish I could take credit for it, but it's one of the things that drew me to Lavender. Like, look, I'd spent 18 years at Challenger. I had made a decision. I was like, I'm not going back to full time. And then when Will reached out, I was like, the number one reason I will say yes to this is because I believe so strongly in the way that you talk about the problem. I would never join an organization that was like, let me tell you why we're number one and this is why our solution is the best. I was drawn, it was one of the the big reasons I joined it is I was so drawn to their philosophy of give with no expectation of return and you'll be often surprised, pleasantly surprised with what you give back. And so that was just from a recruiting perspective, the thing that made me reconsider my stance on not going back to work full time. Um, I think in many ways it's because our founders lead by example. Right? So anyone who follows Will Allred or Will Balance will see how much they post about just writing great outreach in general. I mean, I had someone reach out to me the other day that was like, hey, I doubled my reply rate and I didn't even buy Lavender. I've just been like studying Will Allred's post. 
And we know that that is a possibility of happening. We don't gate anything. We know you guys are fans of that. Like we want to give because I think if you help someone while they're learning, they are much more likely to think of you and turn to you later on when it's time to buy. Um, and so I think it was already well ingrained in our organization prior to me joining on. And it just, that, that was part of what made it feel like a really easy fit for me. It sounds so good. Like when you say it and you're like, cool, like if you give, 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 like eventually they will return. How do you wrestle with any, like putting time, like you need pipeline today, right? Like we got to keep Mike busy. He needs to keep closing deals. You all have raised money recently. So there are targets that do have to get hit. How do you balance sort of like the near term targets that you and milestones that you have to pass with that mindset? Because a lot of companies struggle to sort of hold those intention. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is also my first time selling in SaaS. So I'm a newbie to SaaS for sure. But if I compare the lead volume here versus the lead volume at my last company, it is so night and day, meaning we tracked MQLs. We did all that at our last company. We don't do any of that here. We don't do like um, lead nurturing and things like, thank God, because I'm in marketing. I don't know how to do any of that stuff. Um, what we do though, that I think really helps it be less of a fearful thing to do is we're really sharp, I would say, if I can like tout ourselves a little bit, we're really sharp at knowing where our buyers go to learn and being present there. So one example of that is um, SDR Leaders. It's a group by Sam Nelson. It is only leaders of SDR teams, which if you think about it, is a terrifying job, right? Often you are one of maybe two or three people that have that job at the company. It's often a first-time manager role. You are held to a standard that is so high and it's like when results are bad, everybody looks at you and it's like, you suck, it's your fault. It's a really, really scary role, in my opinion, to be in. And so he brings together SDR leaders at these dinner events. And when I was looking at where we would spend our partnership and you know events dollars, which is part of my remit too, I looked at that and I said, that's a no-brainer because we have so much we can help and teach them with around things that they're probably making their very best guess at. And so when we go to an event like that, there's 30 of them there. On average, we're converting like 20 to 25 of them into meetings. And so it's not to say we're going to close them all, but I think it's a really natural conversation. So we just have a kind of faith-based system. If we show up in the right places, if we're present where our people are learning, and if we add to their learning instead of selling them on what we do, it, it creates this gravitational pull. Um, but I recognize like we're still small, right? We're less than 20 people. I know that's, you know, probably a little bit less realistic for a company that's managing, you know, a sales team of 500. Um, so there's probably some differences there. Well, I mean, Cassidy's managed those teams before, so I'd be curious to get his take, but it, yeah. I'm, I'm with you, Jen. Like, I don't like, why does your marketing or your philosophy around um, getting, going where people are, you like educated, continuing to help them to get even further educated where they're at. Like, I wonder why a company evolves away from that and starts to do other more things that are scalable um, versus just hanging out with folks at Sam Nelson's dinners that he sets up. So curious to hear from Cassidy about that. But before we let Cassidy talk, you said something pretty cool. You said, um, you know, like these SDR leaders are kind of like making their best guess at things. That tells me that you all have done some pretty good research on like what what are SDRs guessing? What are the questions or the guesses that they're making? And can we answer those? That's pretty compelling because I don't think anybody makes like even for me, that's challenging to me. I'm like, hey, what are the CMOs that I'm talking to or want to be talking to? What guesses are they making? What blind shots are they taking? 
don't know if I could answer that like immediately off the cuff, but you all have developed answers to those questions. Was that just like, because you're awesome? Or was there like, <laughs> kind of, or was there like, just, yeah, everybody could like be awesome. Work, or was there just like something kind of, pl- there, was there any planning or strategy behind that? Because that was, no, like, this is compelling. a really, this, this is a really good question. And if you look at when, before Lavender got funding, um, the primary reason why Will and Will went so hard on LinkedIn was because they were like, it's all we can afford to do. Like we can't afford to run ads. We can't afford to do these big bets. So we have to be really savvy on LinkedIn and draw attention. But in the process of doing that, what it became is this really informal listening mechanism. So when they would post around writing cold emails and say, you know, subject lines um, need to be between one and three words and leave out numbers and don't use names and all these things, they would be met back with people saying, well, I was always taught this and I was always told to do this this way. And so it became a really easy way for us to get in the heads of our buyers to understand what are their beliefs and assumptions and then just repurpose that at a larger scale. And so one of the things that was so easy, way easier than I was expecting when I came on was in my onboarding, you know, again, we're still small. It's not like we've got some like massive onboarding program but I was able to really quickly understand what are the assumptions that SDRs, SDR leaders have. And just simply by being able to vocalize that in their language gave me immediate credibility, even though I've never done the SDR leader job. And I think it's like that's the end goal. It's to feel like, hey, were you just sitting in our meeting talking about that stuff that we were talking about because you've just regurgitated what we said. Um, so I think a lot of it comes from the way that uh, we listen and participate in LinkedIn. That's awesome. Well, since Carl called me out, I'll, I'll jump in. And that is, I think everybody, a lot of marketing teams I've been with in the past, they have an events budget. They go off and they do try to meet their prospects where they are. But they show up, to Carl, to use your language, they show up saying, why us? Come see my booth. Come see my demo. Look at how great we are. And so... What I heard different from Jen is she's she's at those events where her audience is hanging out, but she's talking about why change, not why us. And that's what she wants to be kind of known for, and that's her role and so forth. So maybe, Jen, if uh, to put you on the spot, like how would that conversation, how's that conversation differ? Like how do you approach whether you're speaking, you're talking over a drink or whatever, kind of put yourself in the the old world of an event where maybe you showed up and there's the CEB banner and you're standing there <laughs> shaking hands talking about how great you are versus this world where, you know, you're meeting all these folks and you're talking about like, you know, why change their problems, et cetera, and not necessarily specifically about why Lavender. Yeah. And I think some of this gets to Carl, what you had posted about today that I know we'll talk about, which is the other alternative. So as an example, um, at one of the last dinners I went to, at this this SDR leaders group that I'm talking about, um, there was a conversation at my table around um, Orem, right? Orem has nothing to do with email. It's all about dialing. Totally different vendor, totally different space. But because a lot of the folks that we work with don't just go all in on email, they go in, all in on cold calls too. 
normally it's not like me saying, hey, you should do ORM or you should not do ORM or you should do this or not this. It's prompting them with questions and saying, hey, you know, we had another client that was looking at a similar thing and here are the two or three questions that they asked themselves before they made the decision. Have you thought through that? And I think more often than not, when we don't tell, but we we give people questions or formulas to help them make sense of their world on their own, those are really, those are memorable moments. And so then they turn to you and say, okay, well then what is it that you do? Oh, you're in the cold email space. Well, we don't really believe in cold email. Okay, well, let's talk about that, right? There's a lot of reasons why I get that you wouldn't. And I think being able to empathize and not always defend our stance, but really just be able to have a conversation is key. And then the second piece is at that meeting, obviously one of the big you know, topics of conversation right now is chat GPT. And so there was a room full of people who were like, should I even have the SDR team size that I have? Should I just be using chat GPT? And some people that were using it and saying, we're just solely using it. And so being able to help them understand pros and cons, things to watch out for, pitfalls to avoid, I think just makes someone drawn to you because they they view you as someone who's looking to help, not someone who's looking to pitch. Unbelievable. So good. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Like, And I think it's, it's especially difficult for buyers today because it's not just like lavender versus, I don't even know if you guys have technically a, a like a one-to-one competitor. Uh, it feels like you're sort of alone in that space. Uh, but I don't, I don't know, but you've got the vendors that you're up against like one-to-one, but today with limited budgets, like you're also up against these adjacent solutions, right? Like, okay, do I need to improve the quality of my emails? Is that the root cause of my problems or do I just need to pump up volume? Okay, well, a dialer is a good solution for that. Or do I need to train my sales team and have like somebody like Jen Allen come in and like train the team? There are so many different ways to deploy capital to, in theory, produce the same outcomes, right? The outcomes are well more pipeline and revenue. How do you navigate, like how does a sales team and a marketing team navigate not only why, why us, why should you choose Lavender? But, and then there's the why change, right? Like why you should be paying attention to email, but also like navigating how difficult it is to, where do I deploy my capital? Like why Lavender, why is email like the root cause? Like how do good salespeople help buyers navigate that? How do you all do it? Yeah, this is, when you posted that today, I was like, this is the juice. Like this is the thing that I wish I had figured out earlier in my sales career. I'll use an example from Challenger and then I'll switch. When I was selling Challenger, I couldn't believe when someone didn't want to do Challenger because in my mind, I'm like, Challenger is better than any other sales training. Why would you not choose to improve, improve the performance of your, your sales team selling skills, right? And I, in my mind, I was so insulated because I was just focused on my thing. And what I was lacking is to what you said, Carl, that broader context, that it's not just Challenger versus Sandler or Challenger versus Winning by Design or whoever else. It's I could decide to do a reorg. I could decide to fire my sales leader. I could decide to buy sales tech. And when sales tech started exploding, that I think was a giant slap in the face because I realized sales tech is such a more believe, or at least at the time, was such a more believable lift Mm. than saying like, let's roll the dice and train our people and hope it sticks. And so what it forced me to have to do and what I've carried over into Lavender is not just be an expert in our our product, our solution, or even our category, but truly have expertise in being able to enter into a conversation. And even if the prospect doesn't say it, I can say, hey, I know you're interested in lavender, but 
honestly, there's probably two or three things we should make sure you've covered the box on before you even look at something like this, because let's face it, buying anything that new right now is tough. So let's talk about deliverability. That's a cheap thing. Let's talk about the message that you have. How are you building these lists? And I think oftentimes I felt this for sure as a sales rep, we are so eager to get across the finish line that we just think the faster we move, the faster the deal goes. But at some point in all of those deals right now, that buyer is either going to ask themselves or their boss is going to ask them, is there any other way we can solve this problem that is less expensive, less disruptive? So we can either hope it doesn't happen and then probably watch our deal timeline extend, or we can be the ones to lead that conversation and say, I'm going to sit sit on my hands a bit for our solution and just make sure that we've thought through these other things. And I will say, before I stop this long-winded sermon, Carl, when I called you, when I was at Challenger and I was like, I want to look at Refine Labs, that's exactly what you did with me. Like I was chomping at the bit and you're like, first of all, you're not, you're not sass, right? But second of all, like I want you to think about these other things because I don't know if you're in a position to even need this right now. And all it made me feel was I just want it more. And I think that kind of like, that to me is taking control, right? It's taking control of the process versus taking a back seat and hoping that like someone just thinks we're the best thing since sliced bread. Cassidy, sorry you had to hear that. I did DQ Challenger <laughs> like 18 months ago. <laughs> we weren't um, a fit. <laughs> and I think it, it plays into the He's himself now. He's like, oh man, I shouldn't have been so uh, picky back then. <laughs> Was that, could we have helped? Yeah, well, actually, it could have made it work. Um, yeah, so no, that's good. So to go back though, like also it's to think the, to think about revenue fully, there's a churn risk there, right? I could, I could definitely, a good seller can cram any product down somebody's throat, right? Somebody like Mike, it's a killer, right? He's a closer. Like you could sell lavender to anybody. Um, but if they aren't prepared for change to actually make the transformation to not only adopt the software, but like there's processes that have to change, like your rhythm of, of prospecting, your list building. There's so many things that go into like the success of Lavender itself, like using it. It's only one piece of it. I think you builds up so much credibility when you can uh, lead your buyer. Because again, like nobody's doing that. Most, most of the salespeople that you're competing against that either other vendors or adjacent solutions, like I talk about, they're not doing that. So it's really differentiating and it's just good for business. I want you to be successful because what happens is Lavender becomes shelfware and only three out of their 30 reps actually use it. And then guess what? It eventually just gets canceled and they go do something else, right? And they keep like random acts of sales and marketing like Cassidy. They just move to like the next kind of Band-Aid. What you said in a nutshell there, Jen, was that slow is fast in sales. Um, Slow down, pump the brakes. Let's understand the entire context. Lavender's cool, you should buy it, but let's consider these things. I mean, that's why why change, That's that's leading change. Why do you feel like, salespeople struggle because I mean, it sounds so good when we say it, you know, they're like, okay, uh, easy for Carl and Jen to just say this on a podcast. It is difficult to do. What do you feel like are some steps that sellers can take and marketers? I don't want to alienate all the marketers listening to this because the same thing is true in marketing messaging and advertising messaging and website copy, et cetera. What are some steps that you feel like a revenue professional to be inclusive uh, can take to begin to go and kind of like evolve away from a why us centric uh, messaging to a why change centric messaging. 
I mean, I think the the single biggest thing actually comes down to leadership. Like I rarely fault reps for bad behavior. I fault leaders for bad behavior because I've worked for incredible leaders, right? Who want honest forecasts. And I've worked for leaders who want the forecasts to be green. And I think when you have that mindset, you encourage bad behavior and you're going to pay the price at some point, right? Like sure, maybe your forecast is great and then your performance sucks. Like I'm in big favor of always just having an honest conversation about what's actually happening. So when you have a bad leader who's like, you know, where is this deal and why isn't it, you know, forecasted, you're going to see reps making those errors, pushing why, why them, because that's where they're feeling the pressure. So I will say, I think it's really difficult to do this and be a cowboy or cowgirl if you are newer to an organization, if you have a leader that penalizes it, like real talk, I think that's hard. However, what I would say in most cases is check the box on the things that you're supposed to check have your right set of activities, but then on the side, prove it out, right? Prove out that when I do the right things, better things happen. And I think that is the only way to make change happen in an organization that philosophically looks at the world different. If you are lucky enough to work for a leader who is not like make the dashboard green no matter what reality is, I think one of the one of the very important first things is to understand what are those different categories of alternatives. Um, I rarely saw that when I was selling sales training and I got a lot of visibility into, you know, sales training programs and onboarding programs. I rarely, if ever, saw people dedicating onboarding or training time to let's talk about what others could do instead of us. So I think that's a, a really big piece. If you're not getting that from your organization, you still have access to your customers, you have access to communities, you have access to events, get yourself smart on what other options and levers they can pull. Um, two, from a marketing perspective, I'm with you, Carl. Like, I don't view this as this is sales and this is marketing. I think sales and marketing need to be in lockstep with how can we help our buyers learn in a way that leads them where we want to go, not leads with, but leads them to where we want to go. So, an easy example: when I was when I left Challenger, I was obviously doing the Challenger podcast. Carl was on it. Um, I was thinking about doing a podcast on my own. And so I started Googling podcasts because I didn't produce ours. And so I was Googling it and I came across an article. It wasn't branded. And it was saying, here are the 20 things you need to do before you hit record on a podcast. And I think number 16 was like, pick a podcast platform. And when I got to the end of the article, it was it turned out that it was like a podcasting platform that wrote it. But they gave me whatever, 16 steps before it that were giving me recommended resources and places to go and things like that. So at the end of that article, I was like, if I'm going to do a podcast, I'm clearly going to pick this as my partner because they're the ones that taught me. They're the ones that made this easier and less scary. And I think when we just, when we believe that, when we have that mindset as a sales and marketing go-to-market organization and we, and we let go of this like tightly held belief that we have to get everybody's emails and like that's going to be the thing that helps them convert. If we just believe that we've got to help them, I think that's, that's kind of the trigger event that has to happen. It's not easy, but I think when you can do it in small pockets, you build the credibility to do it at a larger scale. I think it like, I love that. And you're, you're so right. I think if I was to boil down what you just said into like a phrase, it's like, it's business acumen, right? It's like understanding how a buyer makes decisions. They don't give their email and make fast decisions. They learn, <laughs> they research. Um, 
And I think a lot of salespeople and marketers like don't have business acumen, right? Even to answer the question of like, why change? That assumes that I know why CMOs should change. I've never been a CMO. So like, I have to do quite a lot of work to get myself to, you know, let's say knowledge parity with a CMO. And oh, by the way, I don't have the luxury of doing the job itself. So I'll never learn it on the job. You, so business acumen. So I want to hang out here for a second. Jen, you like are, are one of like when it when you come to somebody that like has incredible business acumen, you come to mind, right? You're top of my list of business acumen ists. Okay. <laughs> now you switched to Lavender. Okay. Same ICP sort of, right? You were probably talking to a lot more executive folks and VP sales. And now you're talking to like SDR leaders, et cetera. But like you got up to speed really fast and you never done the job. I think a lot of folks, a lot of sellers and marketers struggle with just getting up to speed. And you do, you seem to do that at a record pace. You're like now like doing keynotes and like SDR leaders are listening to you. That is very difficult, even though you're probably going to be like, yeah, it was fine. Like this is, ta- this is talent and a culmination of like all of your experience coming together. If you can unpack, like, how do you get up to speed? How do you develop your business acumen when you're probably not going to do the role itself? How have you kind of navigated that in your career? Yeah, it's a great question. I think most of it in my, for my most recent experience came from communities. So this was something I think we didn't have access or as much access to a few years ago. Um, But now, you know, if I go into my Slack groups that I'm a part of and I search SDR leader, I search, you know, cold calls, cold emailings, I can very, very quickly see what people are talking about and saying and how they're responding and what beliefs and assumptions they have. And there's so many, I mean, just with the sheer amount of podcasts like this, I can go and look for who are great companies we want to work with and see if their SDR leaders have ever been on a podcast or their sales leaders have ever been on a podcast. And I just, the thing that I wish more organizations would do, and it goes back to our theme we were talking about before, is just slow the hell down. If we want our people to have business acumen and customer acumen, why are we putting them in a product onboarding motion for two weeks and then giving them a freaking call activity level? Like, what do we think they're going to talk about? They're going to talk about the only thing they know, which is our product. If we want them to be more versed in the alternatives and the why change, we actually have to slow that down. And, and this was something I actually attribute this back to my time at CEB. CEB did the most phenomenal job of onboarding where I was selling to CMOs as a 22-year-old. And I was like, I don't even know what CMO stands for. I don't know what B2B means. I don't know what B2C means. And like, they made it so that I didn't get to talk or email or to be in around anybody until I was properly signed off and I could talk about what is it like to be a CMO to the best of my degree, right? To your point, I've never been one. I can't speak to it exactly. But I think that like that early impact made it so that I was always looking at problems, not by how can we solve it, but like what does that feel like, hurt like if I'm in that position of the person that's feeling it? Yeah, I remember um, so relevant. Same experience I had like at HubSpot, right? Where it was like, I was onboarded and it was like all this product training. We had to like build a small business in HubSpot to like set up workflows and stuff. And it was, it was fun, but I ended that onboarding and I was like, 
I don't know anything about marketing. <laughs> and what I'm really selling here is inbound marketing and first, and then HubSpot as the platform you should use, right, to, to support that strategy. And I remember, like, I would just, again, same thing I learned from Chris Walker. Actually, so I was first introduced to Chris Walker. I listened to his podcast because I'm like, this guy seems to know something about marketing, and I need to know something about marketing. So I'm going to listen and absorb. I remember, too, I would listen to gong calls, except... I would pay a lot less attention to the terrible discovery questions that were just <laughs> more attention to like what the customer was saying or trying to say. Right. So that was how I sort of up leveled my own business acumen. And I think like, yeah, companies just miss here. They're all of their enablement, all their decks, all of their trainings, all everything is always around product roadmap. Why us? Logos. Here's a customer story of this customer that had all these results. IBM doing this stuff, right? And you have arrests and marketers, right? I think marketers, even worse. Cassidy, you can speak to this, but I don't even know if there is onboarding for marketers. Like, is there like you get product training and stuff as a salesperson? There's usually like some structure, you know, even if it's a few days or a couple of weeks. There's a ramp. Marketers, I don't know if they. <laughs> Here's an Adobe account. Here's login to Google. And... Onboarding. I'm like, what are you talking about? Onboarding. I haven't <laughs> heard of that term. Um, what I think is really interesting is I can, I can feel, on one hand, I can feel this conversation being a, a decade-old conversation of like training reps better. But like the urgency, I think what companies miss is the urgency around your buyers are smarter than ever before they talk to the sales team. And Jen, you mentioned this, you got people like you out educating people and folks are in communities learning from their peers and all the things that we know about marketing and why it changes and selling and why it changes. And now the buyer shows up to talk to sales and they know way more than they used to know, which means your salesperson needs to be way more intelligent and way more informed, have a higher degree of business acumen, as Carl says, and your marketing team. And I feel like this is actually a massive kind of pandemic or epidemic in kind of marketing and sales where most marketers and sellers I talk to just don't know a lot. I hate to say it. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you can put that on the company to figure that out. I think you kind of have to have the grit and curiosity. I'm sure... I'm sure there's no onboarding for you to get up to speed to be knowledgeable in SDRs. You just figured out, I need to go in a community, follow these people, talk to folks, listen to podcasts. Carl did the same thing when he wanted to learn about marketing. At some point, do we just hire people who have this focus on being able to figure shit out versus like being told what to do? I mean, I, I would love it if it was that easy. I'd be like, let's just hire that team because man, would that be a killer team? But I think the problem is there's so few. Like when I look at salespeople that I've been exposed to across my 18 years of selling to them, and I would put marketing in this bucket too, in many ways they are looking up and saying, What do you want me to do? I want to do the very best that I can, right? I don't, it's contrary to what like how a lot of people talk about sales, I don't meet a lot of lazy salespeople. I meet a lot of people who are saying, I'm doing what you told me to do. And so I think the reality is, unfortunately, we have to set the right beliefs, the right mindsets and the right assumptions for our teams to follow suit. And then I agree, Cassidy. Like, I think our stars are always going to be the people that, like, take it upon themselves 
to learn differently. Like when I did the evangelist role, I was like, I don't, what am I, what am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. I, that was when I got sucked into refine labs and I was, I would just keep showing up to marketing meetings being like, why aren't we doing any of this? Right. But I think to some extent the, and I talked about this with Carl before when we were texting, if I have the belief that I have to just show someone that we are the most superior option, everything I do in my process is going to be tied back to that. So the way I do my discovery, the way I do my qualification, the way I do my group meeting, everything is going to be in pursuit of showing why we're better. But in a world where people are not choosing better, they're choosing to stay with good enough, that requires a completely different mindset where to to your point, both of your points, we have to back sellers up and say, slowing down right now is the way that you cross the finish line. And showing someone that you're better does not mean that you win. Even if you are better, you can still lose. And so I just don't know that a lot of organizations are really teaching that why change is important. We're still holding on to 2021 where everybody, to Carl's point, was like, yeah, let's change. We got to change. We have no option. I think it's a really difficult problem because um, I think even there's like a lot of CEOs that don't entirely know why change. I think so, in some industries um, you might, you know, like you may have a CEO that comes from like, like I think of like the collab CEO, right? Where he, he came from like the engineering space and then he built a software. So he's a subject matter expert. But I think especially in sales tech and martech, you get a bunch of founders that don't necessarily know a lot about who they're selling to, right? They just kind of wake up one day and they're like, I'm going to start a sales acceleration platform and compete without <laughs> And that person is like, an MBA or somebody like, or somebody else who's never had a job or they came from doing, they were an engineer and they don't know anything about salespeople. Right. And so I think you're right. It starts at the top or even at the top, like there's nobody that really deeply understands and you can't just open a book and understand. You can't just read somebody's LinkedIn posts and be like, Oh cool. This is how you uh, understand the root cause issues that are happening in this industry. Like there's no like playbook of questions you really just have to dig in and understand. I had somebody on LinkedIn today on my post ask me like, well, what questions do you ask to like be able to like uncover these things? And I'm like, I didn't say this to him. I have to go say it to him now after this podcast. But I'd be like, man, I don't know. There is not a list of five questions. You got to go understand what these people are up to, what they're doing, what challenges they're facing um, and ask them the questions that are going to uncover that root cause. You have to understand how that business works if you don't understand how the business works, you don't know where to dig. You're just blindly digging and you end up not being able to build a case or lead the buyer or do anything, right? That's going to lead to uh, business. That That is like, that like eats at my heart when people are like, what are your five discovery questions? I'm like, it freaking depends on the call. Like it's not as simple as just here's your magic set of questions. And I think it gets back to that like process or template, like the desire to always have the easy answer. Sales is not easy. If you want an easy job, I don't know, go somewhere else. It's it's not it's not here, it's not marketing. It's it's harder and that contextual relevance is always going to be superior to whatever list of five questions you have that is supposed to be good. And one last thing to what you said, I mean, I was doing a bunch of like uh, keynotes at sales kickoffs. And there was a couple where I literally went right after the CEO and the CEO, like one of the companies I was doing, the CEO held up a 
basically like a brag sheet that was like, here's all of our customers and our revenue, whatever. And he was like, if we want to sell more, we just got to put this sheet of paper down on the desk. And I was just like, oh, this is going to be awkward because I'm just going to totally derail that. But that's what I mean. If your CEO is telling you that to your point, what am I going to do? I'm going to do that because if I don't do it, it makes me look like I'm being defiant and the risk is so high right now. And that's why I think this is to your, to your point, I think it's a CEO founder thing. They've got to set the right mindset yeah. for the rest of the organization. Yeah. And I mean, to live to the, to go back to lavender, like that's exactly what will and will have done. Right. I didn't even know what lavender did for forever. Right. But I was consuming their content and I was like, these dudes know stuff about cold email, <laughs> you know, same thing with Chris, like, People come to us all the time and they come inbound and they're like, what, it, what does Refine Labs do? And I'm like, all right, we could probably touch up the website a little bit. But that kind of speaks to that, right? Where it's like, I've been learning for Chris. I don't know what I want, but I want this, whatever this yeah, is. Yeah. Like, what is it? That there's, a, there's a win in there, right? Where it's like, cool, Chris has been talking about why change for so long. People just come in hungry for change. That is the hardest sale. If you can come in hungry for change, my job as a seller is so much easier. I just have to talk to you about why us. It's easy, right? We're order taking at this point. And so that just goes to kind of like speak to like when marketing is doing its job and really evangelizing the problem, like you said earlier, why change? Man, it makes sales life so much easier because when you get an inbound or you go outbound and you have to sell them on why change and then sell them on why you and why you among not only other vendors in that category, but why you among other options, man, like you get a super long sales process, you get super low win rates and you get like some super tired sellers, man. Like that is, that is a, that is a dog fight. You know, it's, it's, you have to close like three deals really just to get the one that, that, that pays you. Um, and that's why I think sales and marketing is working together. So critical, but anyways, I'm rambling Cassidy. A question I have is, um, you step in this role as the kind of evangelist and spokesperson. How do you, um, what was the, the mental model in your head of how you changed or did you change what you talked about? So what I mean by that is you have a lot of experience, challenger, sales leader. You can talk about marketing now. And what you sell is something as a subset of that. And you're not talking necessarily about like what you, the company does, but you're talking about the problems that are a subset of like a broader sales and marketing um, conversation. How conscious were you in, okay, when I'm talking in public now, there's kind of the gen persona of old and there, and it needs to kind of tweak a little bit. And one, I guess, is that fair and did it? And then two, how did you think about approaching that? And was it how kind of, um, structured or thought out was it? Yeah, this is a fascinating question, right? Because one of my things I said to Will Allred when he was talking about bringing me over, I was like, the job I did at Challenger as an evangelist, you don't need. You are the evangelist. You're the email guy. Like, I would be competing for attention with you, and I don't think that makes any sense because you you do it so well. And I think the thing that we landed on is if all we ever talk about is cold email, we will get boring really fast, right? So one of the things he said to me is he was like, by virtue of you talking about other things related to selling, like your point of view on discovery or running group meetings or whatever, you will hook people who hate cold email. 
and they will start to listen to you and engage with you and follow you. And then when they see you talking about cold email and your point of view on it, they will be much more likely to be open to it because you've earned their trust in areas that they do care about. Because let's face it, cold email is like a really (laughs) topic that like people get real visceral and real angry about. And so part of it was actually intentional to say, don't stop talking about these other things because that's part of what gives you credibility in the the community and the audience that you know you engage with is that you've got all these different points of view. But for sure, I had to get smart on cold email and no longer say like, hey, here's how I write cold emails, but actually start to understand where was I screwing up? And and I will tell you, and, and Will and I laugh about this, when I first met Will, because I wanted to bring Lavender in for Challenger's SDRs, he was like, out of curiosity, like, why don't you, why aren't you thinking about it for AEs? And I was like, oh, well, like our emails are pretty good. Like here's one I wrote that's really good. And then he put it in Lavender and it was like a 72 and it was humiliating, right? But instead of him going back and forth and being like, your emails suck. And I'm like, no, they don't he arbitrated it with an objective data-driven way, right? And that completely hooked me. And so one of the things I talk a lot about is not that I'm a cold email expert. I'm not. I talk about like my beliefs and assumptions about cold email when I was selling, what I learned that taught me those things were wrong and now what I do differently. And that's, I think that is consistent throughout a lot of the topics I talk about is I'm not an expert. I'm just someone who's been doing it for so damn long. I've made every mistake. And I think when you teach someone the underlying belief and assumption that you had, what changed that, and then now what you do instead is so much more effective than just saying, here's what I do and here's what I do, because people don't have the backstory. Um, So that was a big part of my my journey coming over to Lavender. That's great. How um let me kind of follow up on this because you mentioned this notion of cold email. I'm I'm I can't I can't stand cold email. Um, <laughs> See, I told you. I'll forward him good ones that I'm like, hey, look at this. This is a good one. And he's like, No, it's trash. And I'm like, come on. <laughs> like they said this, this, and that. I'll point I'll like defending this SDR. We don't, it's ineffective because <laughs> we don't take the meeting anyways. But I'm like, look, this is this is pretty good personalization here. That's what he still <laughs> hates it. Hates it all. No. So, so maybe um, share with us the why change story around this. And like, let me give an example. Like, sure, we've we've kind of baked into the market enough about how to why to change marketing that most people agree at this point. For a long time, even when I was here a year ago, we had a lot of debates with people about what if what we were saying was like the way to change or why to change. And that's kind of gone past. You're using terms like demand creation and so forth and so on. You're kind of at the beginning of this journey of like educating people on why to change. And and basically that change is maybe the perception of how they think about cold email. What does that actually sound like in a conversation? Yeah. So there's two things. So one is I rarely just focus on cold email. So Carl mentioned he watched the keynote, right? That keynote was not all about cold email. There was actually only a couple pieces that were. What we're trying to do is tell a much larger story about the philosophy philosophy of how you have to sell and market today to earn customer attention. So one thing is like, elevate the subject matter. Because if I'm talking about cold email to someone who hates cold email, I'm going to have a hell of a time trying to win them over. So if I talk about earning attention, then it gives me a lot of different pillars to go down, right? So I'm not just positioning cold email as the only way. So it's telling a larger story. Um, But the second thing I would say is about allowing 
the prospect to like have that emotional response to what they don't enjoy, right? So I'll say, I'm sure, you know, most of the emails, you cold emails you get are great, right? And you, I mean, every single time someone's like, absolutely not. I got one the other day and it sucked and here's why it sucked. And it's like, you allow someone to get fired up. And to me, that is a good thing because now there's emotion involved in the conversation. I can work with that. What I can't work with is a flatline conversation where someone's just nodding their head and like looking into the sky waiting for the call to be over. So when I do that, what I then start to look for are what beliefs and assumptions are underneath it. So often what we'll hear is someone will say, you know, really good cold emails require two hours worth of work to personalize. And I'll say, that's interesting. Like, can you walk me through how your reps personalize today? Well, they read the annual report and then they write this sermon and then they send it. It's too long and no one ever replies. And what I'm listening for is what are those beliefs and assumptions that are flawed? Where if I can disrupt the belief and assumption, and this is straight from what I learned from Challenger, I can get them to reconsider their behavior. So instead of me saying, no, you should like cold email, cold email is effective, which is a losing battle. I've got to figure out, okay, you think that personalization, great personalization takes two hours. So now I know why you hate cold email is because you think it's a waste of time. So if I can change your belief state around, you can write a great personalized email in 10 minutes, five minutes, maybe that opens you up to saying, okay, well, let's see how you would do that because I don't believe you. I'm okay with someone disagree. Actually, I want someone to disagree. I want someone to be skeptical. If I'm changing their mind on something, it's not going to be easy. But I, I think in order to do that, you have to give that prospect airtime so that you can listen and learn for what is that flawed belief and assumption that's causing them to hate cold email as much as they do. Yeah, the the, the takeaway, I appreciate that, by the way. I think the one one key takeaway that was really subtle is that you're – trying to create an emotional response and you probably don't care if it's good or bad because you can react either way. And I feel like folks listening to this, when they think about what you just said, that is the objective of marketing and sales is to create an emotional response. And if you aren't creating one, then that's the problem. (laughs) So I love that. I appreciate that. Well, you need that emotional response to like, that's where, that's where change now starts to happen, right? If you don't get fired up about something, there's really not going to be any commitment to change or to invest time or to invest money or to build consensus, all the commitments that you need to gain in a sales process to close a deal. I mean, that's all pivots off of, you know, various emotions. And Jen, obviously you are an expert in provoking those very early in a sales conversation. So um, anyway, I, I, I will wrap up a little bit by just saying the number of times Carl has told me he's going to try to go outbound and email folks <laughs> and then not have done anything. It like literally dies on the vine two days later. So I mean, if there's anything, any advice you can give this guy, but every, every two weeks it's like, I'm going outbound. I'm like, no, you're not Carl. You're not doing shit. <laughs> Carl should go outbound because literally I would pay to receive a cold email from Carl. Cause I bet it would be that See? damn good when you've got that I mean, much. 90, no. 91. Yeah. 91. That's, a, that's a 100. I'm surprised Carl didn't get a 100. I'm going to, I'm going to send, I'm going to, I'm going to try to prospect Mike again and see if he responds. I'm going to prospect Cassidy. I, if anyone is listening to this, <laughs> I will send you a gift if you can get Cassidy and book a meeting with him. DM me. I'll give you his email, his mobile. I'll get all his contact information. Get it from yes. info, get it from me. Doesn't matter. So. Oh, I love it. Game on. Yeah, it's tough. I'm a, I'm a salty old dog. So. 
But <laughs> I like that challenge. What are you gonna? What's on the line, Carl? What are you gonna give? I don't know. I, Gift card? What did you? I say? promised in a previous podcast, like a free pizza party for their marketing team, and somebody <laughs> actually caught like the Easter egg that I left, and then I had to do that, and then I was like, dude, I can't. Your marketing <laughs> team's massive. I can't do that. I can't expense this, dude. I'm sorry. So I'm like afraid to like make promises now. So if anybody can get Cassidy to book a meeting, I will send you cookies from, um, oh my gosh, where's my, my favorite? Grove Cookie, Grove cookie Company. You will get an order of Grove Cookie Company. If you can and hot meeting. tip, title that subject line, Salty Old Dog, because that's like, that's the trigger. That's, that shows you were listening to the trigger line like right there. So... So I just want to make sure every expectations are set. Carl will send you one cookie. <laughs> uh, split amongst he, your marketing he, team. Yeah, it wasn't just, he promised a $1,000 pizza party <laughs> on our last podcast, on that podcast he's referring to. And then he, then after we wrapped, he's like, dude, what happens, man? Can I expense that? And I'm like, no, you're on your own, dude. Somebody wanted it, man. Somebody <laughs> called me out on it and I just ghosted him. I just stopped re- <laughs> I was like, God, I hope this doesn't make it to legal. Like, trying to get one less listener. Like, the republish the podcast. Be like, dude, hey, cut this part out. <laughs> Anyways, Jen, uh, we'll wrap up. I know we kept you long. Thank you so much for joining Stack and Growth. Um, if there's anything that we can do to support you, support Lavender. Um, we only need like a couple seats over here, but if Mike can book a meeting with Cassidy to sell him Lavender, I might. Send a cold email sometime in the future. Challenge accepted. You're on. All right. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, you guys. This this is a blast. Appreciate it. Thanks.